So today we are continuing our, our way through the book of Luke. And so if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 7. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, um, that's okay. We have um, some pew Bibles that are, are near you, most likely. Um, and so if you're, you're using that, this, this passage is on 863 in that Bible. Uh, so as, we, as we've been working section by section through Luke, uh, we've been for three weeks in Luke 7. And really this chapter is centering on the, the authority of Jesus. Uh, so two weeks ago, we looked at the authority of Jesus over sickness as he healed the, the servant of a Roman centurion. And then last week, we looked at the authority of Jesus over death itself as he raises a, a young man from the dead and presents him alive to his mother. Uh, and then today, we're looking at the, the authority of Jesus over doubt. What does Jesus do when, when he confronts doubt? And it's interesting, you know, two weeks ago, really, we, we talked a lot about faith, the faith of this Roman centurion who uh, models for us what it is to come to Jesus. He says that he had never seen such faith, even in Israel. But then here in our text, and we're about to read, we see John the Baptist struggling with doubt, that his faith is wavering. And so it's really interesting that this great prophet is, is struggling with faith, this outsider, this Roman centurion has, has strong faith. So Luke has really defined our expectations about who has faith, um, who has strong faith, who, who's weak, who's strong, um, and it's this upside-down kingdom of, of Christ. Uh, so, so listen as I read uh, Luke 7, beginning in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all of these things to him. And all these things is talking about the, the healing and the raising of the dead. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be offended by you today, but that you would use this passage to confront our doubts, our uncertainties that we could have certainty concerning the things that we've been taught. And so, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, two weeks ago when we did talk about faith, I, I had mentioned at that point that if you go to church long enough, uh, eventually you'll hear people talking about faith, and, and you'll hear the word faith a lot. But I think that in some ways you're less likely to hear about doubt we don't talk about doubt that often in the church, or if, if we do, I think sometimes it's dismissed or doubters are just made fun of or chided. 
or we, we act like doubt is, is a problem that, that somebody else out there has in some other heart, some other church. But I'm really convinced that, that doubt is a huge problem for every single one of us here in this room, that if you're a Christian, that most likely you have or will struggle with doubt at some point. Um, if you're not a Christian and you're just exploring what Christianity is about, I mean, you probably have doubted your unbelief in various ways, that, that doubt is something that just characterizes our world in so many ways, so it's helpful to, to take some time to, to look at it. And really, a great place to look at doubt is this text from Luke. Because as, as I said, uh, John the Baptist, this great prophet, is struggling with doubt. And we get to see how Jesus is able to lovingly con- confront his doubt. And so we're going to just look at this in, in two sections. And so, so the, the first section, we're going to look at doubt. And we'll, we'll look at two observations about doubt. And then in the, the second part, we're going to look at how Christ confronts our doubt. And, and again, we'll make two observations about that. And so first, uh, two observations about doubt. And the first thing we notice here is that doubt can arise from even the, the strongest believer. Look again at, at verse 18. It says, the disciples of John reported all these things to him and And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, if anybody in history could be considered a strong believer, it's definitely John the Baptist. I mean, we, we saw in the book of Luke um, early on that he leapt in his mother's womb when he was in the presence of Jesus. Uh, he was one of the first people to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. He said, behold, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, when Jesus came down to, to be baptized, he says, no, I, I should be baptized by you. I'm not, not worthy to, to baptize you. He said that he's not worthy to even step down and try to unfasten the sandal of the Messiah. Uh, he was predicted in the Old Testament. He's, you could say he's the last and the greatest Old Testament prophet. Uh, he's a, a strong believer, if ever there was one. But here, John is struggling with doubt. And so he, he sends messengers to Jesus with this urgent question in, in verse 19, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So he's saying, are you really the, the Messiah? Are you really the coming one? Are you really the one who was predicted in the Old Testament? Or if I made some kind of terrible mistake, and maybe we should be looking for somebody else. And it's interesting that when I was reading commentaries this week, Usually I like the older commentaries better than some of the more modern commentaries. Um, but actually a lot of the, the early church and even kind of Reformation era commentaries, I think kind of missed what is going on here a little bit because they tended to say, well, John isn't actually doubting. That, that he's, it's more of a, a teaching mechanism where he, he wants to help his disciples go to Jesus, discover who he is, but he's you know, com- still completely confident. 
But I really think if we're reading this text on its own terms, it seems pretty clear that, that John has honest questions about who Jesus is, about the identity of Jesus. Uh, because even when, when Jesus responds, he responds to John. Go back and tell John this. Say what you've seen, what you've heard. So it seems like it's, it's actually for John because he was facing doubt about the identity of Jesus, even as a strong believer. And he's not alone in the Bible. That, that if, you, if you read the Bible as a whole, Abraham is commended for his faith. And yet, we know that he struggled with doubt. He doubted the promises of God when he took Hagar as his concubine. Moses is somebody who's commended for faith. And he doubted when he struck the rock and then wasn't able to enter the promised land. Um, David is said to be a man after God's own heart, again, commended for faith. And he expresses real doubt throughout his life. If you read the book of Psalms, many by David, uh, you can see this. I mean, in, in Psalm 22, he says, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Or in Psalm 77, he says, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? So in a sense, it's that, that cry of, Lord, are you the one who is to come, or, or shall we look for another? It's this, this cry of a true believer struggling with doubt. And I think that probably some of you here understand that, that cry as well, that you're a, you're a true believer, you love Christ, but there are these existential dark nights of the soul where, where you wake up and, and you think to yourself, well, is, is Christianity really true? Did Jesus really do the things that the Bible says? Is he really actually the Messiah? Do I believe only because I grew up in America or I grew up in a, in a Christian family? Should I continue pursuing Christ or should I look somewhere else or to someone else? And again, if you're thinking that, you're, you're not alone, that John the Baptist, as a believer, struggled with doubt, Abraham, Moses, David. And I'm, and I'm really confident that every single believer has or will struggle with doubts. Um, I have struggled with doubts. You have probably struggled with doubts at some point, that it's, it's an ordinary part of the, the Christian life. And I think that that has some implications for us in the way that we live, that the first implication is that when you face doubt, when it comes into your life, don't be somehow surprised as if something strange is happening to you or that you're the only person who has, who has struggled. Because what we see here is somebody struggling with doubt, but then how actually Christ meets him in the midst of that doubt. But then second, I think it, it shows us that we shouldn't be harsh with others who are struggling with doubt. That it's easy when someone else expresses doubt to be able to react, oh, I can't believe that you would ever struggle uh, to believe in any way. And, and so we, we just inadvertently shame people, make people just want to remain silent. And I think that, that churches have done that many times, not, not intentionally, but I think that they, they have, as people are expressing doubts, they don't listen, they interrupt. Uh, they, they jump immediately to the answer that they think should be given without really 
listening to the question that's uh, being asked. And so people who have sincere doubts then end up keeping them to themselves. And because they don't hear anyone else ever express any sorts of, of doubt, they assume that no one else in the, the pew or the seat beside them has ever struggled with doubt, so they, they feel alone. And so that's one of my, my prayers for hope. Not that we would just wallow in doubt, but that it would still be a place where people can express doubts and, and, and feel heard, and that we can actually care for one another in the midst of the doubts that, that we have or will face. And so that's our, our first observation about doubt, that it can arise from even the strongest believer. But here's the, the second observation, that it can arise from wrong expectations. Because the, the religious establishment at this time had very clear theological expectations about who and what they thought the Messiah would be and what he would look like. And so basically everybody, including many of the disciples, said, yeah, the Messiah is going to be a political leader. He's going to kick out the Romans. He's going to restore justice. He's going to put an end to suffering in the world. And that's what they, they thought was going to happen as soon as the Messiah came. And I remember hearing a story in seminary about uh, this rabbi who was sitting, studying the Torah, and his uh, disciples came in and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, the, the Messiah is outside. And so he, he got up and he just cracked the window, closed it again, sat down and continued studying. And they said, Rabbi, don't you want to at least go out and see if maybe the Messiah is here? And he said, well, I've smelled the air. And when the Messiah comes, everything will be different. But the air is the same, so the Messiah hasn't come. And so he just continued studying. And that's just a, a picture of the kind of expectation of the Messiah that, that probably John grew up with, that when the Messiah finally comes, everything will be different. Everything will be new. Uh, but we learn from the book of Matthew that uh, at this point, John is in prison. Uh, he is on the verge of being executed by King Herod for exposing the king's sin. The Romans are, are still in control, and in some ways the oppression is getting worse. Uh, he's just looking around, and it seems like everything in the world is, is getting worse, not better. And so I, I, he thinks to himself, okay, what I'm seeing out there and what I'm seeing in here and in this prison cell isn't lining up to my expectations of this great messianic age and the, the Messiah coming. And so maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I spoke too soon. Maybe this isn't actually the Messiah and I should be looking for somebody else. And I think that that's really the, the basic logic of so much of the doubt that we struggle with. We say, I'm expecting X, but I'm seeing Y, and therefore maybe X isn't true. Here are some examples. Uh, you, you say, I expect that an all-loving, all-powerful God wouldn't allow his children to suffer. I'm suffering, and therefore maybe God doesn't exist, or maybe I'm not his child. Again, it, it, seems, it seems logical on paper, but the problem is that it's operating with this wrong expectation. I mean, the gospel, the, the message of Christianity is all about God 
allowing his own son to suffer for the redemption of his people. And so, so would God allow his children to suffer? Well, the answer is yes, but, but he does it for our good and for his glory. And so we, we doubt because of wrong expectations. Or here's another example. I expect that when somebody becomes a Christian, his or her life will be better and more prosperous. I'm worse off than I was before I was a Christian, and therefore maybe Christianity is a lie. Again, seems really logical, but the assumption behind it, the, the expectation is that, that Christians shouldn't suffer, that, that if you become a Christian, everything is going to suddenly become good in your life. But again, Christ is the only truly righteous person who ever lived, and we know that, that he suffered, he was maligned, he was poor, he was homeless, he was misunderstood. And so, so really, is our, is our expectation correct? Would God allow us to suffer as believers? Here's another example. I expect that followers of a true religion would be good people. Christian churches are full of hypocrisy, and church history is full of evil deeds from people claiming to be Christian, and therefore Christianity isn't true. And so what's the, the expectation? Well, the expectation is, hey, if, it's, if this religion's true, the people are going to be good. But actually, the, the premise of Christianity is, is the complete opposite, that, that we don't go to church because we're good or because we have everything together, but actually because we are broken and that we come proclaiming that Jesus is the only truly good person, that we come looking to him to save us and to, and to redeem us. So we shouldn't be surprised if we see hypocrisy or brokenness in the church because that's the whole reason that we're here seeing Jesus as, as everything. And so if you're struggling with doubt then, you know, whether, whatever it's coming from, whether it's wrong expectations or something else, um, I have just three suggestions to, to think about. Uh, the, the first is to, to actually make a list of your doubts uh, and be really specific with them because I've, I've always noticed that, that sometimes doubts can become very vague. Uh, I, was, I was talking to a friend a few years ago and she was expressing that, that she was really struggling with, with doubt. And I said, oh, okay, well, what are you, what are you doubting? And she, and she couldn't really list anything or name anything that she was actually doubting. She just said, I just have this, this feeling that Christianity may not be true. And I think that, that Satan really loves vague doubts uh, because they're absolutely irrefutable. <laughs> um, because you can just sort of wallow in, in, in doubt, but you don't really know what you're doubting. And so there, it's, it's impossible to give any sort of answer, to think through, or to have the doubts confronted in any way. And so I think that there's something very honest about trying to say, what am I actually doubting? But then the second thing is, once you are, are clear on what are you doubting, is just to think about what are the, the expectations underlying it? Are there, are, what are the assumptions? Are, are those assumptions actually true? And I think that, that it's, it's right for us to ask those kinds of questions. And, and we don't have to be afraid of, of asking the questions or, or looking at the questions, uh, because truth is, is truth, and truth will be um, displayed and, and falsehood will be displayed and, and none of us have any sort of invested interest in believing a lie. 
Um, and, and so to think about it, because we live in, in God's world, all truth is, is God's truth, and we can use God-given minds to, to, to think about these things. But I think then the, the third response, though, is, is not just to, to mull over things in our, in our own minds or to rely on our own intellect, because we can so often misunderstand or, or make mistakes. But the third thing is to actually take our doubts to God in prayer. And that, that's really the difference. You say, well, what's the difference between doubt of an unbeliever and doubt of a believer? And that, that's really the, the, the difference, that the doubt of an unbeliever moves away from God, and away, it moves away from Christ with the doubts, where the doubt of a true believer moves towards Christ and, and takes those doubts to him for him to deal with, which is exactly what we see John the Baptist doing here, saying, I'm, I'm doubting, and where does he go with the doubts? To whom does he express the doubts? Well, it's, it's to, to Christ, because he knows that he can deal with them. And this is really because faith can still be true faith and be weak or be strong. And I sometimes we think that, that all faith has to be 100% strong all of the time. But you can, you can think about this as uh, an airplane, so you can uh, imagine an airplane fl- flying, and I always get nervous. Brian's a pilot, so he always, he'll have to tell me if any of this is a good illustration. Um, but so the airplane is flying, it hits terrible turbulence, and so it feels like it might just be torn apart. And you can think of three people on this plane. So one person on the plane is doubtful that the plane is going to hold together. He's terrified. And so he decides that, that probably the best option is just to open the cabin door and just jump out and try to dive into the ocean below, uh, that it's his best chance for survival. And I think that that's the image of the doubt of an unbeliever that's moving away from Christ, of saying, I, I don't think that this is going to work, and so I'm going to go somewhere else looking for hope and life. But then there's a second person on the plane who is also terrified, also isn't sure if it's going to hold together, uh, but he thinks that his best option is still to stay on board, so he goes in, puts on a seatbelt, and just kind of buckles down and, and tear for the rest of the ride. And I think that that's the picture of somebody who, who has true faith and is, is in Christ, but yet is, is struggling with, with doubt, with uncertainty. That's what we see in John the Baptist here. But then there's a third person on the plane who is totally confident and is just sitting back, reading the newspaper, having a great time, and the, and the reason is because he's ridden this plane a hundred times, he knows that it's reliable, and so he, he said, yeah, this, it's, it's fine, it's going to hold together, and, and that's the, the picture of somebody who, who, has, who has faith, but then also complete assurance, complete confidence without doubting. And then if you think about that, okay, of, the, of the three people, well, of course, one jumped off, but of the, the two who actually stay on the plane, who is actually safer from being torn apart in the storm? Well, they're both equally safe because it's not about their subjective feeling of how strong the plane is. It's about how strong it actually is. And if the plane is actually reliable, then they're actually safe in the midst of the storm. And it's, it's the same with, with Christ, that, that our... Our salvation, our faith is what connects us to Jesus. It's the act of staying on the plane and saying, 
Okay, I don't, there's nowhere else to go. Uh, and, and, but obviously, it would be much better to go through life confident, without doubt and fear. But yet, somebody can be, be doubting and moving deeper into Christ, saying, I want to trust him more. And so it's, it's that cry that we see in, in the man who meets Jesus and says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Or when the disciples say, well, Jesus says, others have left, are you going to leave? And they say, where else will we go, Lord, that you have the words of, a, of eternal life? Um, and, and it's really saying, here are my doubts, my fears, my uncertainties. You take them and deal with them. They're, they're your problem. You, you take this and show me how to have confidence. And so really, those then are our two observations about doubt that it can arise from even the strongest believer, and it can arise from wrong expectations. But now let's turn to the second half of this and, and look at how Christ then confronts our doubts. And here again, we'll, we'll make two observations. So first is that, that Christ confronts our doubt by pointing us to eyewitness testimony. Look at verse 22. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And so when these disciples come, they, they see what Jesus is doing, they see his, his miracles, they see his, his power. And Jesus doesn't say, go back and tell John what a bad prophet he is. <laughs> or go back and tell John to just believe more. Just have more faith. Look into his heart and just pull out the faith that is there. Um, but no, he, he tells these witnesses to go to Jesus. And, and he says, go back and, and, and present evidence of what you have seen and what you have heard. Go and present the facts. Be honest. And I think that that's interesting that John doesn't see Jesus. He's not with Jesus. And in that sense, he's a lot like you and me. That, that he, he's not able to be there actually physically seeing what Jesus is doing in that moment. But yet Jesus apparently believes that this reliable testimony of these disciples can actually help undermine his doubt, can help strengthen his faith. And this is really what the, the entire book of Luke is about. We talked about this at the very beginning of the series. And if you just flip back a few pages to Luke chapter 1 and look at verse 1, it says, Insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those, those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O oh, most excellent Theophilus. And you say, well, why? And it's that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so the, the whole purpose of Luke, the, the reason that he's writing this book, is to help confront doubt and to help us have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. And, he, and the way that he proposes to do this for Theophilus is he says, I have, I've talked to the, the eyewitnesses, I've put together this orderly account, uh, and therefore you can actually 
trust Jesus, um, this is what he did. This is what he said. This is his perfect life, his death, his resurrection. Trust him. Don't look for anybody else. You can actually rely on him in the storms of life. And that's basically the message of the entire New Testament. I mean, the, the New Testament wasn't written by people hundreds and hundreds of years after Jesus who had no connection to him, but it was written, all 27 books of the New Testament, within the lifetime of people who actually knew and saw Jesus alive. That it was, it was all written in connection to people who were, who were eyewitnesses of his life, death, and resurrection. And so we have this, this amazing eyewitness testimony in the, in the scriptures. And so if we're struggling with doubt, then, then a place we can go is, is to the witnesses that Christ sends to us, to, to Mark and Matthew and, and John and Luke and to Peter and to, to all the things that, that we read here. And, and it says, this is who Jesus is. This is what he did. This is why you can actually trust him. And so Christ confronts our, our doubt by pointing us to eyewitnesses. But then second, second observation, he confronts our doubt by pointing us to the Old Testament. And, and it's easy to, to miss, but in this message that, that Jesus sends back to John, he actually alludes to the Old Testament five times in this one verse. There are five passages from the book of Isaiah. And I'll just very quickly read them. Isaiah 26:19, Your dead shall live, their dead bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Isaiah 29:18, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Or what Dave wrote, read for us, Isaiah 35, verse 5 to 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Or Isaiah 42:18, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, and he has sent me uh, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening of the prisons to those who are bound. And so, Jesus doesn't simply want John to see just disconnected facts about who he is and what he's doing. But what he wants John to do is to pull on his knowledge of the, of the Old Testament and essentially put the dots together and saying, these are the things that I'm being told are happening. And this is what the Old Testament said about what the Messiah would do. And so it's, even though my personal expectations aren't what are being met, the Romans are still in control, yet the scripture is still being fulfilled. And, and so you can almost just imagine Jesus saying, all right, look at Isaiah. The deaf are going to hear. The blind are going to see. The dead are going to be raised. The poor are going to have good news preached to them. This is happening. Trust me. Rely on me. Believe in me. Don't look to anyone else, but look to me because I have the, the fountain of, of living water in myself. And so if you also then are, are struggling with doubt, yes, read the New Testament, but there's something about 
reading the Old Testament, we so often ignore it, but just the way that it all testifies to the beauty and the glory of Christ, but yet in a way that, that we would never expect and could never plan or try to falsify. And, and for me, when I was in high school, I, you know, I was raised in a Christian family, um, but then started to have a lot of doubts and, and questions about, about my faith. Is this really true? Can I actually rely on this? And, and you know, I read the New Testament, but then when I finally read through the Old Testament, I think I was a believer before that, but still that was where the, the, my eyes were really opened of, of, wow, this is really actually true. I mean, written by, by so many authors over thousands of years, yet all pointing to the same person through different lenses and seeing that, that Jesus is on center stage of the entire Bible and shines forth clearly, shattering doubt and uncertainty and, and giving life. And so just as we, we wrap up together then, I, I just want to call your attention to the final verse of our text, um, verse 23 in Luke 7. Jesus says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And, you know, we, we live at a, a time when we can find almost anything to be offended by. Um, and so the question is, are you offended by Jesus? Are you offended when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Are you offended when he says, whoever believes in the Son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God? Or are you offended when he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish? Or where he says in the book of Revelation, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And you can keep going. That Jesus says a lot of offensive things in the Bible. The, the gospel itself can be so offensive to our pride, our modern sensibilities. But really, I think that the most offensive reality in the Bible is actually the cross of Christ. Because what the cross says is that we can't, do it on our own, that we can't save ourselves by good works or by, by ceremonies, um, but that actually our salvation required the death of the Son of God in our place, taking the wrath of his Father so that we can be forgiven as he rises from the dead. And that, that is, I think, deeply offensive but at the same time, it's the very reality in Scripture that also shatters our doubt and uncertainty like nothing else. And so if you're, you're struggling with doubt, yes, pray, yes, read Scripture. But I think at the very root of it, look at the, the cross of, of Christ. And that's why Paul focused everything on the cross. In 1 Corinthians 2, he says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So he's saying, you're, you know, I'm not going to confront your doubt and your uncertainty with just my own eloquence or by human reason. He says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in a couple weeks, we're going to sing this song called the, the Perfect Wisdom of Our God here at Hope. We haven't sung it before. Uh, but, but listen to how it describes the cross. It says, The matchless wisdom of his ways that mark the path of righteousness. His word, a lamp unto my feet, the spirit teaching and guiding me. 
And oh, the mystery of the cross that God would suffer for the lost. And so the fool might shame the wise and all the glory might go to Christ. And, and really what that is describing, talking about the, the wisdom of the cross, shaming the wise, bringing glory to Christ, is, is how the, the cross confronts our, our doubts and our uncertainties. And that's part of the reason that, that we end every service with the Lord's Supper. Uh, we do this as a doubt-crushing exercise uh, for those who are in Christ. Um, and, I, and that God gave us words, and, and then he gave us physical, tangible signs to point to who he is, what he has done. Um, because we can be reminded as, as the bread touches your mouth, as the juice touches your lips, that Jesus is, is more real than even this. And we don't believe that he is, is physically present here with us, but he is spiritually present to strengthen us, to, to encourage us, to show us that his body was broken, his blood was shed. He came to, to give us life. He went to the cross for us.